Though our world has turned to scat It's better because of you And that's a fact We're in this together You and I We're in this together You and I Westbrook and KD All on the same team in Oklahoma City Yeah, I remember that That's crazy it's crazy, you know, and they, and they never won because they didn't have any front court at all. They, they could, didn't have anybody who could, you know, get rebounds and help them out. Well, I think that I I said that the Celtics could win it all. I don't yeah. I don't know. This Eastern Conference Finals could be a little bit could go either way, basically, based off of the way that the Heat have been able to play as a system. Right. Well, Spoolstra, he's an amazing coach. Yeah, well, everybody knows that, and Pat Riley was too. The Heat organization's done a good job at front office-wise. Absolutely. And they're also Absolutely. good at making uh, good use of underrated players or Absolutely. adequately rated players that are being misused on other teams, you know? Yep. I mean, and that was that was a hallmark of, of Pat Riley, and it's obviously a hallmark of Spoolstra as well. Yeah, fun to have a film room guy get the head coaching position straight, yeah. straight off the career. That's fun. Absolutely, yeah. But but welcome back to You'll Understand When You're Younger. I am Jordan. And I'm Brian. And today we are going to talk about Code Talkers, the concept, and the book. Yes. Uh, and yeah. it's going to be presented by yours truly. His name is Dad. <laughs> by yours truly i mean not me which is not how people <laughs> traditionally use the word yours truly but it's how i'm using it well done but to get us started i suppose that we should do a weekly question we should and i'm hoping you have one prepared because i do not if you could redo your honeymoon and you got an all-expenses-paid trip to anywhere, where would you take your lady lover to celebrate your marriage? All right. That's a great question. That's that's a bit of a challenge. Uh, I don't know if you know the history of the honeymoon that your mom and I had. Originally, the honeymoon that we took, and I'll explain that in a second, was not what we were planning. We were looking at potentially taking a cruise or going someplace in the Caribbean, and there was an issue with my tax return. I submitted it well in time, but there's no electronic submittal at this point. There was only uh, paper. And so the tax return, we didn't get it back in time, so we had to pivot. And so we ended up doing a wonderful honeymoon, which was a trip around the uh, Lake Michigan and, and Lake Superior area. And we had a blast doing it, lots of fun. And to be honest with you, Jordan, I'm not sure what I would pick uh, specifically, there's a couple things I would look at. One of them would be a trip to probably Australia slash New Zealand area because I would love to see that at some point in time. And especially if it was all expenses paid, that would be a blast because right. we'd want to spend a lot of time there kind of doing some of the history stuff, doing some of the fun things. And it's such a huge, you know, it's a continent. So it's such a huge area. It'd be fun to see that. So that would be one. And then the other one I think that would be interesting would be the Mediterranean. One of the things your mom and I have talked about quite a bit is checking out Greece specifically and spending some time in that area. So the Mediterranean would be one option and Australia slash New Zealand would be the second option. 
How about yourself? Well, I don't anticipate my honeymoon being all expenses paid. That'd be right. cool if somehow I fall into that load of cash, but I'm not sure who has it. Certainly not my tax return. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I think I would like to do, I think it'd be fun to do, we're not like beach people. So I think it would be fun to do something like Greece, but not just like a Greek Grecian resort, but to actually right. like do a, I'm a big road tripper. So a little European yeah. roadie from be fun. the south of Greece to the north of Greece, seeing all of the towns along the way for like oh, a week. Sure. And then maybe if we wanted to like dip north of that into, I guess, Eastern Europe, that's like Serbia, right? That's north of yeah. Greece. Yep. Yeah, yep, that'd be right. But the, I mean, you could drive pretty quick over to Germany from there. Yeah, it's, it's all like so close, seven like you said. Hours maybe. So yeah, maybe even take the train. Right. So I think it'd be fun to do that, like a more a, a real sightseeing adventure versus, uh, you know, like going to a Caribbean island, for right. example, which is what a lot yeah. of people my age have been doing when they've been getting married recently, because it's still exotic and yet very cheap like your yeah affordable for sure further. yeah absolutely so that I, that would be fun but i would be happy with anything i would also be cool with a lake michigan circle tour myself i don't think that that's what i'll aim for but it is doesn't sound bad to me to be honest no we had a great time we had we had a blast we had i mean there's still some some things that we laugh about that happened on that trip and you know it, it was a lot of good memories you know, one of the things that I like to think about in situations like that is, you know, obviously we had different plans and we had to pivot, but, you know, I think it worked out for the best. If we had gone to the Caribbean, I'm sure we would have had a good time and, and enjoyed ourselves. But what we did there was, like you said, we've talked about this many times on this podcast. It was a road trip. We stopped lots of different places, saw lots of different things and had a blast doing it. So, yeah, I yeah. like those they're really popular now tasting menus where you go to a restaurant oh, and yeah. you pay a fixed price and they bring you out like five yep. courses of different very like rich foods that if you were to eat too much of any single one of them would probably be too rich to enjoy but right. in small amounts it's like you're being treated like king louis the 14th who's the right. one who lost his head is that king louis the 14th uh, sure we'll, we'll pretend it's that uh him and marie antoinette oh yeah but he, I think he, that was uh, Louis the Eighth. He he beheaded her. Yeah, I can't too many Louis. French history. Too many. Too, it is, yeah, lots of French stuff going on. Anyway, I I lose my head over a good tasting menu. It was going to be the pun there. Ah, uh, sorry, so I couldn't help. Uh, but but that's okay. Maybe there's there's like twenty six of them or something. Ah, I can't. It doesn't matter. But I feel like a road trip is like that. You get a all good things in all like just the right amount you know right. if you're in las vegas for four days you've been there for too long but if you're there yeah. for three days like you got just enough of all of the sensory overload that's how i feel yeah. about a road trip like you get to go and see all of the things in just the correct amount of time yeah i agree so i'd like to take that concept to europe since they nope, don't, don't have a car culture there, I'm going to make it a car culture, even if they want me <laughs> to ride the train. Well, good luck.
All right, let's get into Code Talkers. All righty. So uh, are you familiar with Code Talkers at all, Jordan? So I think that we talked about it when I was in seventh grade history. Okay. We talked about the Zimmerman code, the Zimmerman telegraph. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, that they busted. That was uh, Europeans trying to encourage Germany, not Europeans. Germany trying to encourage Mexico to invade the United States. So yes. As to distract yes. them from invading Europe and yes. stopping the the movement that they had there and absolutely so i knew more about code breaking but not so much code sure. talking yeah so that that you reference right there is the room 40 folks so they are the ones who were from britain and they were crypto analysts and they're the ones who broke that code and discovered that and actually that's part of what got the united states to get into World War One because they were a little pissed off that uh, one of their neighbors was going to try to take back some land, and so that that is certainly one. Uh, I'm a bit of a crypto it. analyst myself. You are awesome. Are, you, are we talking cryptocurrency analyst or actual cryptography? I don't I don't know what it is. They just tell me to give them real money, and they give me fake money in exchange, <laughs> and I get to call myself an analyst. Perfect. I like it. I like it. So, yeah, so that's definitely uh, some folks that were into code breaking. There's a there's an, another group that we'll talk about in just a little bit. But before we talk about that, we'll talk about code talkers. So when you start thinking about a military organization, one of the most important things that you have is communication, right? So sure. anytime that you're trying to move something from one place to another, there's the logistics of it but there's also that communication piece of it. So if you're trying to move a, an army from, let's say, the north of France to the south of France, uh, you can just tell people to go. But if there's not good communication lines to let you know where there might be roadblocks or bridges out, you, you, they're, they're, that's a struggle. Not only that, but if you're on the offense, you want to make sure that you are making plans and sharing those plans with other folks and, and your enemies can't understand what you're doing. And so, like, like I said, communication is certainly very key. And so getting back to World War I, when we talked about the, the Zimmerman Code, because that was broken, that made people, when we were in World War II, think more and more about how can we make sure that any communication we have is secure right. and super effective. You want to do it, but you don't want it to happen to you. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So what I want to talk about today is, you know, the code talkers that existed in World War II and worked with and for the U.S. military. But we'll lay a little bit of groundwork. One of the things I did want to talk about is another example of cryptographers. And so we talked about Room 40. And then the other one that you for sure have heard of before is Alan Turing, right? You've heard of Alan. The, the godfather of the AI test. <laughs> there there you go. So he was part of a group called Bletchley Park, and he was the one who was famous. Him and his group at Bletchley Park were famous for cracking the Enigma code. And that was a type of uh, enciphering machine that the Germans used to send their, their messages securely. And so lots of folks had tried to break that code, but it was Alan Turing, his group at Bletchley Park, and they invented a tool called the BOM, B-O-B-M-E. 
B-O-M-B-E, excuse me. Bombe. And that Bombe. And they're the folks who actually broke that code. And so up until that time, the Enigma code was something that was highly used and deeply used by the Germans because they felt that nobody could break that. And then Alan Turing went ahead and did that. So that's an example of, of that wonderful communication aspect. And then the, the other thing is, and this one's just kind of an interesting one, was while Alan Turing and his, and his buddies were doing that, there was a, a World War II POW who was also from the British Intelligence Agency, and he was stuck behind en- enemy lines. And one of the things that he was really famous for was that he would write letters about things that were seemingly very innocuous, such as a vegetable patch. And he had a code that was in there that was actually also never broken um, that detailed information that was happening within the German side of warfare. So he, he was an example, again, of someone who did some code talking um, and, and was very helpful in World War II. So those are some, yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting too. I hadn't heard of, of uh, John Pryor before this. I'd heard of obviously the Zimmerman telegram and also Alan Turing, but uh, John Pryor I had not. So, I only but, know Richard Pryor, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> different guy. May, different guy, absolutely a different guy. He, he did a kind of code talking. He 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 did. He jive talking sometimes as well. Yeah. So, so anyway. Um, what we're going to talk about today are the Navajo code talkers. And before I get into all of the details around that, one of the things I want to explain is that during, during World War II, the U.S. military really was looking, like I said, for some secure communications. And so they actually didn't just use Navajo as, as one of the languages for code talking. They actually recruited uh, Native Americans uh, from the Hopi tribe as well as some other tribes to try to develop a, a, an unbreakable code. Okay. And so, yeah. And so when they started trying to figure that out, they were not sure how this would work. So back in 1942, they had sent a letter off to the U.S. Marines and said, hey, the, the U.S. military and, and the, the advisors to the president, FDR at the time, had sent off a letter to the U.S. Marines and said, hey, we need to find a way to make sure that we have a code that is unbreakable. And so what ended up happening was that a general sent a note to that Navajo nation and said, hey, we want to recruit 200 Navajo men who understand not only their own language very well, but also understand the English language. And we like to talk to them and see if, in fact, what they have with their language is something that we can use. Now, that's obviously very unusual. You can't imagine the, the U.S. government coming to somebody and saying, hey, you know, let's use your language as, as a code. But that is what happened in this circumstance. Sure. And why would they choose the Navajo and Hopi as opposed to, um, like, somebody who spoke Serbian? Sure. That's a great question. And the reason for that is because of the com- complexity of the Navajo language as well as the fact that it is almost entirely a spoken language. There are some written words, but it, because it was spoken, that meant that there was very little to, to go from. You could only go off of sounds. And, so like even if they found out that you were speaking Navajo, they couldn't buy a book of Navajo phrases because it wasn't written down anywhere? Exactly. The other piece of that puzzle was that there were no words for any military things in the Navajo language. 
So they weren't a, a warring uh, nation for the most part. You know, sure. obviously they would uh, you know protect their own land, but they they weren't offensively warring. And so there were not a lot of words for you know, like say combative you know, behavior. Yeah, exactly. And so that meant that if they were speaking a term in code or in their language in this case there was no way to tie it to something you know you can make up something that that could be a term for for a gun in 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 french and you could probably break that code because i said oh this sounds kind of like gun in english or it sounds like gun in 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 french and so we can kind of tie it to that that is not the case with the navajo language sure well yeah so i would you want that to be a cipher of any sorts for sure you Absolutely. want it to be unrelated words. Absolutely. So what happened with the co-talkers was that they went and, like I said, they, they recruited uh, 200 men. And to sell this type of uh, situation, they brought in four Navajo speakers specifically who they had done some pre-testing with, who, they again, they knew the English language very well because that was super important to be able to speak with the rest of the uh, the, the military right. and also knew, knew their language very well and had them do a test. And so basically they created a quick uh, cheat sheet, if you will, of words coded with the Navajo language. So they created a cheat sheet that were, here's words that we would use in, in Navajo that would match these potential words in English. And they put him through a test to see if that could be correct. And they had some of the best people who uh, were code breakers in the military try to break that code, and they had no idea what these guys were saying. And so that made the, the uh, military go, you know what, let's give this a, more of a shot. Sure. And so they went ahead and brought on 29 of the 200 recruits. So they went and tested all of the recruits. And they brought on 29 of these men and brought them to the recruiting depot in San Diego, which is basically where the Marines uh, train right now and also where the the Navy SEALs train are down in San Diego. And so Camp Pendleton and such. Yeah, exactly. So Camp Pendleton for the Marines. So they brought them on there and they sent them through a bunch of intensive courses on on how to actually transmit messages and, and using radio operations. It wasn't simply like, hey, just go ahead and talk. In, in Navajo and tell people what's going on, they actually had to use the equipment because once they were recruited, they were the ones who had to carry those heavy radios. And I don't know if you've ever seen photos oh, of, yeah. of the, of, yeah, oh, of the radios. Saving Private Ryan. There you go. So those, those um, radios are huge, right? They're like 70 or 80 pounds. And, and so these guys yeah. had to carry those around. So they had to not only carry that around, make sure that it worked, but then they also had to speak in Navajo, which was easy enough for them. But they had to take what the military jargon was, translate that mentally into what the code was for the word in Navajo. In real time while you're getting bombed on a beach. Yes, right. And they had to send it to the other Navajo speaker on the other end, who then had to, while he was being bombed, yeah, translate it into English. And so this kind of brings into the bias of, of, you know, the unknown, unfortunately. There was a lot of consternation on the U.S. military side. You know, can can these guys even do this, right? And not so much can they be trained to this, but unfortunately, like I said, this some of the bias of the unknown is like, are they smart enough to do it? And part of that was the the Navajo Nation, unfortunately, just like many Native American tribes in in the United States, had been pushed around here, pushed around there by by the uh, by yeah, people trying to s- s- settle the area, right. as well as as well as the U.S. government itself. And so 
they weren't seen as being quote unquote educated people because they didn't follow the same rules and regulations that, w- that, you know, we did as, you know, Western Europeans. And so there, there was the very skeptical view that, that they were going to be quote unquote smart enough to figure this out. However, the thing that turned out to work really well is they got put right into the Pacific theater. That was where they were first used and they were first used in the battle of Guadalcanal. And within the first two days of them being in this, the people who worked with them called back and said, we need more of these guys because this is amazing and these guys are awesome. And so it, it went from being one of those situations where there's a lot of skepticism to being we can't do without these guys. Sure. And so it, it was it was one of those situations where the the Navajos themselves actually kind of felt uh, a little out of place. And some of it was, you know, they were obviously living in their own communities on the reservations and speaking various different things. But, but as they were growing up, you know, again, using the Western mindset, uh, they were sent off to various different schools. And those schools were set up for them to learn English and to stop using their native Navajo language. And so whenever they would go to these uh, residential schools, they would be told that they had to stop using yeah, for, Navajo. Forced assimilation, right. Exactly. Pretty common tactic and, for colonizers. Absolutely. And that's obviously not just here in the United States, yeah. across the world. Right. But that's one of those situations that that's what happened. And so... As they grew up, they got to learn less and less of their language, which going back to when they were recruiting these folks and trying to uh, get them to be uh, the code talkers, they had to understand Navajo really well. And the challenge was that was literally and figuratively beaten out of them over the course of you know tw- 12 to 14 years in, in schools. And so... W- right, because you're, uh, not, you're not recruiting the, the old village, yes. uh, you know whatever you want to call him, mayor, elder, to go to war, you're getting an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old, who has just exactly. spent their entire life being forced not to be Navajo, and now they're like, wait, can we take it back? <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. You know, Obviously, for multitudes of reasons, not the least of which we already spoke about, but a 70 to 80-pound uh, you know, radio, you're not going to have a 50-year-old cruising around with that as no, well as a gun. Not if you want to be quick. No, no, exactly. And so the, the, the Navajo were obviously skeptical themselves. We talked about how the military folks were skeptical. The Navajo were also skeptical. But they, they said, you know what? This gives us an opportunity to do what? It gives us the opportunity to share our language and our culture with the world and to, to bring that up. And so one of the things that happened was they started off with a very small base of code that they used. And, and as I mentioned, there wasn't really a lot of military words in the Navajo language. So they ended up creating a code of probably 10 to 20 words to start with. And it was basically around troop movements and, you know, potentially, you know, is, is there a plane or is there, are there guns here? And so that's where it started off. But by the end of the World War II time frame, they had created a code book that had 450 words that were spelled phonetically and memorized. So they were never written down again. Still, they kept that piece of that language so that they, this could never be broken from that perspective. Sure. And so 450 words doesn't seem like a lot, 
you know, when you start thinking about it, but when you start thinking about how very specific those words had to be and what kind of context, that is a lot of words you had to memorize. And as you pointed out, Jordan, you had to pull them out of your hat under bombing, under being shot at. Not an easy thing. So from a linguistic perspective, one, memorizing words that you haven't used is like something that we all struggle with where like we went to vocab class, but then you stop using the words and then they just don't (laughs) come to mind. Uh, But the other thing that is super interesting about that is trying to like, so when you say they use 450 words, were they using existing Navajo words as symbols or were they actually inventing like new words? Like, did they have to, Ah. because if, if you're coming up with a new word, then I, I just, as like a person in English have to go, like that's, (laughs) that's three noises that don't make a word. Like now (laughs) that's a word. Right. Right. So they didn't necessarily create new words, but they tied their words or the words for various different things into something that kind of made sense in the Navajo language and eventually when it was translated translated to English. But like I mentioned, there weren't words for the for the military, so they technically did kind of invent words that didn't exist. So as an example, uh, and I'm going to and I'm going to apologize ahead of time because there's just there's no way I, I can You don't speak these. Navajo. I think that's... I do not I think, speak language. I think our listeners will forgive you for that one. All right. So w- I'll give you two examples of words. One of them, the military word is minesweeper. Okay? And the English word is beaver. So just... And I'll give you the Navajo word in just a second. But if you think about a minesweeper and a beaver, those don't... Even when you start thinking, okay, how could that even be related so you can't they, I, in my they mind. played computer games during world war ii as well <laughs> they did they did exactly minesweeper was huge it was a huge thing i mean but, obviously but you, if they had to use it, <laughs> a navajo word for it obviously and so you can see how when you you know logically minesweeper and a beaver don't seem to be the same thing and then the navajo word for it is i'll say it's cha c-h-a cha and so uh to me if you start thinking about uh, you're, the, these were mostly in the Pacific area around a lot of folks who spoke Japanese. And the, the word for tea in Japanese, or one of the words for tea, one of multiple, is cha. And so you could see if they heard the word cha, they could be thinking about liquids or, or drinks or waters or whatever. Right. But this has nothing to do with that. See, because I would so have done could, the Navajo word for prairie dog. That seems like more minesweepery <laughs> of the animals than beaver. There, but there you it go. probably doesn't sound like tea, you know? It, there, there you go. And then the other one that I'll use is the word for destroyer. So the word for destroyer. Like the ship? It, yep, like the ship. In English, and you can see how these could be related. The English word for it is shark. And so you can see, yeah, a shark is a destroyer. But again, to me, that's there's no logical connection there, right? Sure. Except that they and both so, are in water, and correct. I and I made that connection without even hearing the Navajo word. So well, well, well I done. Could be a code well breaker, done. You could be. You could be. You could be. Uh, so the word in Navajo for that is kalo, C-A-L-O, kalo. And so again, you, I mean, to me, you hear that word, and it, uh, I think of Frida Kahlo. 
like the <laughs> there you go the artist there from South go. America or Central America. Yes, I- exactly. So you hear these words, and and obviously it's because they're native speakers, they're speaking them very quickly. And if you don't have a native Navajo speaker uh, b- trying to break the code, how are you even understanding what they're saying? So it's it, it, to to your point, Jordan. They ended up having to make words that that kind of were uh, square pegs in round holes, if you will. They made words that that seemed to work for them, and as long as they memorized what they were, it worked. So even their friends, their English-speaking friends who were not Navajo in any way, had no idea what these guys were doing at all. They just knew that they were radio operators, and they would hear them speak in Navajo, and they'd be like, uh, "What are you doing?" and these guys were sworn to secrecy, so they so they couldn't talk about that. And I'll speak. I'll talk about that in just a second. Hmm. All right. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, so, one of the, so the guys I, on the front with them weren't told that like these are our code talkers. Like if you have some, like they were just known as the radio operators. They weren't specifically like nobody knew that they were doing any kind of encryption. That is correct. That's that is absolutely correct. It is. To me, that was one of the most interesting pieces of this is that they were sworn to secrecy from the very beginning. Once they started doing some of the the training, uh, you know, the uh, basic training, they got pulled out of the basic training area from the other groups, the other uh, non-Navajo folks, and put into their own little area for basic training. And of course, the, you know, if you're going through basic training, you see somebody else getting, getting quote-unquote special treatment, you wonder what's going on. Because they were never around the other Navajo folks, they never got to really ask them questions. And then obviously once they got slammed back together again, there's a little bit of resentment, right? It's like, hey, you got to skip out on all this basic training stuff that we had to do. And so the co-talkers had to learn how to, like I said, they had to learn how to use the, the radios. They needed to learn how to send and receive messages. But the other thing, and this is the thing that's interesting, is that they needed to kind of understand what they were saying. And I don't mean understand it in Navajo or in English. But if you are telling somebody a troop movement, uh, yeah, you know, you better so make th- damn sure that what you're saying makes sense and isn't going to get people killed. Exactly. You can't make a mistake. Right. And you need to at least have an understanding, because if someone says to you, hey, we want to have the troops move northeast uh, and then yeah, we, like then move in a- the right flank. You're like, OK, well, I don't know what that means, but I right. can say those words like then you're right. Then you might be right. saying the bad thing. Right. Not only that, but you might also have heard on the other side that they're that where the right if they're supposed to move to the right flank, that the enemy actually had moved into that. And if you didn't have the concept and understand what military maneuvers were, you wouldn't have been able to catch that and say, hey, wait a second, Mr. or Mrs. Officer. Like we uh, can't go to the right flank. Yeah. We, we can't. Yeah. I was just told by this person that we can't go that way because these people moved in. And so it was it was it wasn't just translating. It was truly having to understand how to use an uh, use the radio plus the the whole concept of military operations so these guys had a lot of weight on their shoulders if you if you really think about it because they had to translate all the stuff and understand it at the same time sure that's impressive so yeah so like i said they they were very much a secret program so one of the things they had to do was like i said sign off on on this remaining secret forever like literally once they got into this, they could never talk to anybody about it. They couldn't talk to their families about it, their their friends, their brothers, their sisters, their wives. Nobody. Well, they could tell nobody. You and I have heard of it. So how'd that happen? Exactly. So what ended up happening was in the late 1960s, uh, there was a movement 
to allow for some of this uh, information to come out and help us understand exactly what happened. And part of the reason why it was not declassified until then is that not only did they do a bunch of work in World War II, but they were also continued to be used in Korea and in the early days of Vietnam. A lot of these folks were still working and doing some of the code in code service. talking. Sure, absolutely. But because their their um, it, the information was not provided publicly, none of these code talkers rose above the rank of corporal. So they they only had the ability because oh, they weren't to... getting credit for the work that they were doing because they couldn't <laughs> exactly. tell anybody about it. Correct. So people were like, well, he's just a radio operator. Why would I give him a promotion? Wow. And and so and the people who potentially would have wanted to give the promotion, you know, you have to you have to justify that to, to other people to, to make sure, hey, I want to give Jordan a promotion. Okay, why do you want to give Jordan a promotion? Well, because he's he's a really great radio he's operator. Really good at touching <laughs> the buttons. He's he's awesome. You know, and and the guy above me is gonna go, uh no. And so None of them were recognized while they were in the military. They were never recognized outside the military because they were sworn to secrecy and could, could tell anybody. So like I said, in the 1960s, some of their stuff was de- declassified. And once that started happening, then some of the stories started to come out. But still, because of the way that the country was in the 60s and 70s, and there was a lot of backlash against you know a lot of folks who were in the military, the, the code talkers we're like, you know, we don't really want to let people know necessarily what we did or didn't do in the military at that point in time because that could be, you know, we, we could be seen as, as you know, being bad. Giving away, and, yeah. And yeah. so they chose not to say anything until in 2000, at the tail end of his presidency, President Clinton awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor to all of the code talkers. So obviously that's the highest award you could get and he gave that to every single code talker or the group of code talkers that were out there. So obviously many of them had passed away at that point in time, but they happened yeah. to, to get, get that award from, from that. Um, so that was, that was very cool. And so now over the last 25 years, there's been a lot more sharing and talking within the native American community, as well as the, you know, the, the community writ large about this. And they're, they're unfortunately, Fortunately and unfortunately, there was a there was a um, a movie made about the code talkers, but it really wasn't about the code talkers. It was really about somebody else, and there happened to be code talkers in there, but they tried to sell it that way. I would really like to see either a TV show or a movie or a documentary made about about these men because they were obviously specifically, yeah, yeah. These guys were obviously very brave. They put their 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 uh, you know self, themselves on the line. Many of them, when, especially when they were carrying radios, uh, didn't necessarily ha- you know, ha- have the ability to carry a gun. Not that they weren't allowed to carry one, but if they were trying like to carry the radio and do it, that. Right, yeah. Right, it got to be a, a challenge. And so the other, some other friends of theirs had to carry guns for them. And so they, didn't, they weren't always able to, to defend themselves as, as quickly and easily as the rest of the folks do. And that, that's typical of any radio operator. But in this circumstance, it was, it was, um, it was uh, you know, very challenging. So a couple of things I also wanted to point out was uh, there's a, a major that was a uh, signal officer uh, in the Marines, and his comment about uh, the, the South Pacific, about the code talkers, 
later on, obviously, once this was declassified, was were it not for the Navajos, the Marines never would have taken Iwo Jima. And if you wow. think about that, that, yeah, that's that's pretty pretty amazing. Yeah, that's uh, like a landmark th- victory for that, like not only for it, like the merits of itself, but also was a huge morale boost for the Eastern Theater. West, it absolutely. Theater, sorry. Yeah, it was it absolutely was that was such a uh, like you said it was a morale boost. And the the thing that was kind of cool about that is if you look at the the statue of Iwo Jima, and obviously. Uh, you know what that looks like, and maybe our listeners do as well. It's the one where the flag is 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 starting to go up, right? They're, it's They're starting pushing to it the into ground. the mountain thing, rocks. Exactly. One of the folks in that photo is a co talker. Oh, so really? he was able to, yeah, he was he was a, a, a part of that. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, when they all those guys got interviewed, right? You know, over time, it's like, oh, you're one of the guys in this in this photo. What did you do? And he basically got to tell me he was a radio operator, and it wasn't a big thrilling story. Whereas if he would have been able to tell his whole story, that guy probably would have been able to to share and you know and and not only his secret but the secret for the rest of his his uh, compadres. So um, anyway, uh, getting kind of back into this. The, the, the biggest thing to take away from this, at least from my perspective, is that these are some folks that for, for good or for ill for 60 years kind of were lost. And at this point in time, the whole reason that I got into understanding and knowing about these guys, I, is I had heard about the book called Code Talker, and it was one that was on my list of things to read. And I hadn't gotten around to it. And then I had spoken with, uh, actually with Grace, uh, because she right. had some folks from her class. She had her whole class read that book. Yeah, it was and so part I had of the back. curriculum for her school district that she teaches at. Absolutely. absolutely. And I went and read that book, and it, it was amazing. It, it's, not a, uh, uh, it's not a nonfiction book, but it's based on nonfiction, if that makes sense. He had to change a bunch of the names and some of the information in there. Right. He draw, uh, it's, a, it's a novel based on a true story. Is that how yeah, you would describe it? That's exactly it? Yes, that's exactly what it is. And so he was able to capture the feeling of pride and the capture the feeling of trepidation that happened to the folks that were part of this program. And it was it was truly amazing to me to understand the kind of impact that 29 folks, and it was more than 29 at the end of the day, but the initial 29 folks really had on our ability to 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 win the war in World War II because I mentioned that they started off in the Pacific, but once they realized how valuable these individuals were, they brought them to the European theater as well. And there were code talkers that participated in the D-Day invasion. That's interesting. I feel it like is. That, cause it, that doesn't get a lot of play. Obviously, D-Day was a very busy day. Um, absolutely. But multiple days, I guess. But it was. It's. I feel like that part isn't ever really focused on. I, I had no idea. I was aware of code talkers and, and assumed that it was only in the Pacific. Sure. I had no idea until doing research and reading this book that they were part of the D-Day invasion, uh, which is obviously, again, when we talk about an operation like that, the communications are critical for things to be able to go well in any way. And uh, they were definitely a key to that, to that uh, operation as well. So... That is our topic on, on well, uh, Code Talkers. Th- I, thank you to the Code Talkers for absolutely playing such an integral role in our democracy and absolutely. not um, 
allowing what I would call at the very least a tumultuous history with America to prevent from from helping the free world. I guess. Absolutely. That's absolutely that's huge. It is. It is absolutely huge. Because they, they could have they could have said, nah, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. But they did they, they they absolutely could have, but they they well that was the thing that was interesting, you know, getting back to the book just a little bit. One of the things that he really highlighted was that at least the 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 part of the tribe that he was talking about, really they had a lot of pride in America. And what I mean by that is even though they had been abused and misused and treated poorly for years and years and years, they still had a lot of pride in this nation because they could see that what was happening in the country potentially was a good thing. That, that we were growing to be a, a, a country that had... Yeah, you know, doing some moral corrections, whereas... Exactly. Yeah, from, exactly. From so they started, at least. Exactly. So they had that, that kind of uh, you know American pride, at, and then once they were asked to be part of this program, that really was a huge thing for them. And it, they brought that back to their to their communities. That's awesome. Well, thanks again yeah. to the Navajo sure. tribe for lending us your, Absolutely. your best. Uh, we are indebted. And um, that's great. I am surprised hearing that it's a it's a novel that they they have not made a a movie based off of that specific novel yet, Dad? No, they have they have not. It's it's unfortunate because that that to me the story was was phenomenal, and I could see how it could be either a movie or, you know, a ten episode Netflix show. Yeah, that seems uh, well, like that would play really well given all of the military yeah. themed movies that you and I saw when we went to the theater last. <laughs> yeah. like yes, being at a USO show at the theater. <laughs> It was, but yes, it, to me, it seems like it would, like you said, it'd be a great movie, but I think really to truly tell the story, it'd be something that would be a more I of a series, you, could, you think, an HBO yeah, series? You know, yeah, even if it's, you know, just a limited series, like a one, a single season type thing. Uh, I mean, it could obviously go more than that, but you, you, I think you could have quite an impact if you did it, you know, eight or 10 episodes and really dove into, you know, kind of the history of it, uh, the history of the people themselves, uh, the history of, of co-talking is in as well as what impact it had beyond you know the military yeah absolutely well that's great i, so, I appreciate you sharing what you learned I, i'm going to add that book to my list you should absolutely all right how about this weekend media dad what have you got all right. Well, I will talk about the show on Paramount Plus called Tulsa King. And if you have not heard of that show, it's a show that actually stars Sylvester Stallone. Did, didn't you I, talk about this on one of the other podcasts? I did not. Oh, okay. I did not. Yes. Right. I, it's one that I, th I think I mentioned I was going to talk about it, but I did not. And that's written, so, but that's written by our boy, right? Um, Taylor it, it Sheridan. Is. Taylor Sheridan, which is what drew me to this. Two things drew me to this. One was Taylor Sheridan, and the secondly, I'm a huge Sylvester Stallone fan. Whether you like him as an actor or don't like him as an actor, I I watch almost anything he makes, even if it's crappy. So, which I, is I, most I, of I, the stuff he makes. <laughs> it, it, it can be. This, however, was I really liked this show. I, I'm not certain, you know, that it's for everybody, 
but it's got some uh, it's it's got some good humor. Uh, it's very self-aware humor as well. And so I'll I'll just throw out a couple of the folks that star in this. So Sylvester Stallone obviously is in there. Another gentleman who you may be aware of is Martin Starr. He's he's from uh, Freaks and Geeks as well as Silicon Valley. Yeah. The, so he's the ta- the nerdy one. Yeah, the, the tall, goofy-looking dude. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then Andrea Savage, who I don't know if you know who that is, no. but she, one of the one of the shows that she's in that you that you might want to check out because I know a lot of people like is Veep. So she's oh, she's yeah. in Veep on, on With HBO. Julia uh, Louis Dreyfus. Exactly, and and Andrea Savage is a stand-up comedian that's done a lot of different things. So she's she's pretty funny, and she has kind of a cool role role in here. And then the other one that I'll throw out that people would potentially know is Dominic Lombardozzi. And for folks who are fans of The Wire, they will know who Dominic Lombardozzi is. He plays a um, Don't interesting say role. Don't say anything. No, no, I will not. I will just say he plays an interesting role in here. So good show. It's only, uh, I think it's only eight episodes. Uh, I would definitely check it out. There's some good music in it. Uh, you know, some of the things obviously are way out there, but it's still fun and entertaining to watch. So I would recommend you checking it out if you have Paramount Plus and you're a fan of Taylor Sheridan. Cool. Thanks, Chad. My This Weekend yeah. Media? Yes. I, I finally did it. Uh-oh. I started watching The Wire, which you just referenced. Yes! You've been yes. telling me to do it for years, and because of that, I've been putting it off. Yes, I know that can happen. And can happen. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm running out of shit. And so I'm watching it, and it's it's good. I'm on episode two. E- episode two of season one? Yeah. Yeah, no, okay. I j- literally just started it. If you know me, I'll okay. be done with it next week. But Absolutely. <laughs> but I just started. So, and I saw Idris Elba, so, uh, which is cool. Yes, yes. And, it, yeah, it's interesting. So you're too into it, and obviously we, we won't talk too much about it at the moment. But... Uh, it's it to me, and I like you've heard me say this. It's w- for sure one of my top three. Yeah, that's why shows I just I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I'm really yeah. running out of I'm really running yeah. out of things. Well, I'm glad that you're actually watching it. It's 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 very very good. Uh, unfortunately, we lost one of my favorite characters from that TV show just within the last month, Lance Reddick. He uh, he he just passed away. I think he's only like 60 years old, and so um, yeah, I saw that uh, on Instagram. That's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's a great character in there and there's a bunch of other characters. Once you get into it, when you get done with season one, we'll talk a little bit more about it. That sounds good, but I will, I will chug away in the meantime. Awesome. I love it. How about something you learned this week, dad? All right. So I learned about the McDonald's drive-through and when it was first opened. Do you have any idea where and when the very first McDonald's drive-through occurred? I do, but I'm going to let you just say it. All right. So it was in January of 1975 and it occurred in Sierra Vista, Arizona. So not too far from the Tucson area of Arizona, if you're not familiar with where Sierra Vista is. Yeah, it's like so, halfway between Tucson and the border of Mexico if you were to go straight south, right? Yes, it is. It's very, very close to that. And the other thing that's very 
close to where this specific McDonald's is and is what pay, uh, plays into why there is a, a, a drive-through there. It was at Fort Huachuca. Um, there's a fort there that uh, folks would travel back and forth to Tucson. Uh, the soldiers would go back and forth to Tucson because they were looking for having a good time in Tucson. And on the way back, they were in such a rush because they had to be back in and on the base by a certain time that they never stopped at, at the McDonald's. And the, the gentleman who owned it, his name is David Rich, was getting frustrated because he saw all these cars going by. And he's like, why do none of them stop? Some of these people got to be hungry. Yeah. And so well, and it's McDonald's, obviously, like you have to yeah. stop. Exactly. I, stop I mean, at every it's, McDonald's I walk past. <laughs> exactly. And so that was, so that was one piece of it was the, they had to get back at a certain time. But then the other piece at that time is the, uh, the, uh, the base itself had a no appearing in uniform in public policy. And so the folks who were trying to rush back, the soldiers who were trying to rush back, they didn't have the ability to change clothes to jump into McDonald's to get some food and then head back, right? Sure. So that's stopped them from st stopping at the McDonald's as well. So he came up with the idea to kind of hole in the wall of his McDonald's and take orders from there. That solved two things. One, people could stop and get food quickly because everyone knows that McDonald's has the old speedy delivery system. And number two, they didn't get out of the cars, so they didn't break the rule of not appearing in uniform in public. We call that a Grandpa Johnson hacksaw solution, where it, <laughs> when anything is wrong, you start by cutting a hole in a wall. <laughs> there, there's no truth to the rumor that he used a hacksaw, but he could have. But people say it. People say it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I thought it was interesting that that's when the first drive through happened was in 1975. Because in my mind, it's been around forever. See, uh, but now I knew that it was a drive-in first because people like old people talk to young people about how they'll never understand what a you know a tape deck is or right. what a drive-in is. Right. And they're, they whine about it incessantly. It's really quite annoying. But so I knew it wasn't there from the very start, but I would have assumed that the drive through started because McDonald's was it headquartered in Illinois and Illinois gets harsh winters right. and yep. people didn't want to go out in the winter. They would just cook at home. And so McDonald's was like, well, how do we get people to come here when the weather's not favorable? I know yep. we'll just let them stay in their car. So it's yeah that seems that seems logical. So it's funny to me that it actually originated in hot weather instead of cold, you know. Absolutely. And of course, the military was involved. Why wouldn't they be? Of course, that's it. Seems to line up really well. They also invented the internet, so they should at least get partial credit for the McDonald's. Whoa, whoa, whoa. hold on a second here. I thought Al Gore. I thought Al Gore invented the internet. That was when he was working at the Sierra Vista McDonald's. Gotcha, gotcha. Um. How about you, Jordy? What did you learn this week, my friend? So I didn't learn it this week, but I was reminded of it this week. And I just want to okay. know if you also know this fact. Uh oh. W which president? Uh, I want to figure out how to phrase it as a question. There have been how many presidents now? 46? 45? 46. 46. So 
if you had to guess the number of the president who has grandchildren still alive, like the the oldest president with still living grandchildren, like what number president that would be? Does that make sense? So let me just click. It, I think it does, but let me just clarify the question. So what you're saying is that the president who is still living with the oldest living grandchildren. No, no, no. The, oh, in the okay. history of all the presidents, like okay. they have descendants, right? Yes. And which, like, and then those descendants eventually die and like everything moves on. So like, I'll, yes. I'll, give, I'll give you an example. Like you could say, George Washington's grandchildren are still alive. He was president number one, but that's not true. His grandchildren are long dead, right? So I'm yes. I'm wondering what what president you think still has living grandchildren as far back as you can go. So not just every president with living grandchildren, but who's the oldest or the the most long past president with living grandchildren? Does that make sense? It does. I am going to say Harry Truman. And what number do you think he was? So let's see here. So, uh, boy, let's see. We're going to be doing this live here. So if we've got, I've got Biden, Trump, Obama. He was president number 33. Yeah. Yep. There you go. Are you prepared? I would only had to go back 12. Are you prepared for the answer? I, I well, it sounds like I'm I'm not correct. Buckle so in, I'm, uh, buckle, buckle in, in buddy. buddy. Um, John Tyler, the tenth president what? of the United States, who no. served from 1841 to 1845. No way. John Tyler was born in 1790. He served what? as president over 170 years ago, but has two living grandchildren. So these are not great grandchildren. No. These are grandchildren. As in their grandpa, John Tyler is their grandpa. <laughs> no. no way. Yes. No way. So John Tyler had fifteen children, not uncommon for the day. Eight of whom were born to his first wife, Letitia Tyler. Seven okay. of them were born to his second wife, Julia Tyler. Okay. The youngest of her of his kid yes also waited until they were extremely old so so julia tyler was significantly younger than john tyler when they had the seven kids he was on a second marriage and close to death but she was quite young and then had kids and the youngest of those kids waited until he was really old to have kids and now as a result he had um, the, the, his son, Lion Gardner Tyler, who was born in 1853, had those children later in life. Lion Gardner Tyler Jr. and Harrison Ruffin Tyler, who were born in the 1920s. And as of 2023, both of them are still alive and in their 90s. No way. That's insane. The 10th president of the United States. Direct descendants I was, who served two centuries ago. I was way, way off because I'm thinking Truman, you know, in the 40s, you know, that's that'd be wow. That's crazy. John Tyler. So that family in three generations has spanned almost all of American history because John Tyler was born in 1790 and the kids are yeah. still alive. 
So, <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, they're, That's crazy. they're on their last legs, some would say. But that is, you know, if I were them, I'd try and keep it going. I would, even though they're 90, well, I would take a new wife and I would just... <laughs> roll the dice and see what happens because I think it's kind of an American treasure to be like, I'm the great grandchild of the 10th president of the United States. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. And I'm the great, 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 great. Like, no, I am the great grandchild of John Tyler. That's insane. And I would like them to have a weird name. Like these ones, like Harrison Ruffin or lion Gardner. Wow. Yes. I would like that as, as well. So that's amazing, George. There's, I, I did not know so that, that at all. There's a viral YouTube video from, uh, I believe it's with either Harrison or Lyon, like 11 years ago or something okay. like that, where they were just like interviewed on on a news show. And like he sure. walks around his house, which was John Tyler's house. And he's like, oh, like, <laughs> oh, man. this is where grandpa would like have like the Virginia shuffle or whatever like to host a square sure. dance like here's the square dancing room it's yeah. just like oh my god like your grandpa was born in 1790 you know <laughs> my grandpa was born in 1930 their grandpa yes, was born in 1790 that's insane yeah so just something wow just something to remember that's crazy i I'm blown away. I I needed to buckle in. I'm glad that I am sitting down. I'm I'm glad I made you guess. I know it was a difficult qu- it, it, the forming the question itself was difficult, but you answered it like a champ. And that's I would have <laughs> guessed something like that, even though you were just horrendously wrong. Yeah, it that's just, I, but it's okay. It, it, yeah, that's okay. I'll I'll get through it. Uh, thank you for potting with me today, Dad. I appreciate. Yeah, thank you. Learning all that stuff and. A special thank you as well to Ted Heineshevitz, who wrote the song that we use as our intro and outro. It is called You and I off of his album, It's Fine. And you can find Ted H wherever you listen to music. Take us out, Ted. We're in this together, you and I, you and I.